Amen. Amen. As you know, we've been going through um, a series on the book of John. The book of John is, is just one of those quintessential books, which we call the Gospels, um, that, that, is, that is a book that has been rocking all of us. It's been uprooting stuff um, and planting stuff. The, one of the things where we called it um, Jesus Christ Unplugged, because we wanted Jesus Christ um, to, to not be plugged into what people philosophically assess about him, but we want to hear right from him and, and his particular witnesses that he's called um, to, to be his components or proponents that promote him in, in, in the rawness and realness of the striking footage that he displays in the gospel. Um, we've gone through several sections, and now we're in the latter section called the Passion Narrative. And I have the, 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 the greatest honor uh, of preaching uh, the slain Lord today. But before we dive into that, I, I think something that has a relationship um, to what we're going to talk about today. In, in hip-hop culture, um, hip-hop culture loves martyrs. Um, it, it, it has icons, and one of the icons that predates Biggie, uh, uh, Tupac, um, all, of, all of the, the quote-unquote martyred icons, there was a fictional icon um, um, that was in the movie uh, Scarface. And in the movie Scarface, I mean, most uh, hip-hop artists utilized that as the hip-hop Bible for so many years. And they love, they love, they love my man Al Pacino playing, playing a part of Tony Montana because he, he kind of was the type of dude that could relate to the regular dude on the block. I mean, he was Cuban, he was a Cuban immigrant, came in with, with, with gutter nothing, and he came in uh, to America and he was trying to make a way for himself. And they kind of slipped into this opportunity of making his way up the ranks as becoming a beastie kingpin. And so guys like, everybody's dream is, man, all of us from the gutter and we want to be able to make sure that we're able to get our positioning and opportunity to become to do it big so to speak and so um my, my man Scarface is still an icon if you watch MTV Cribs everybody's gonna lay on the wall they got they got a frame of some type of part of the movie of Scarface on their frame because there's there's a fascination about people who came in on the humble that people slept on and and and, and became this great icon but what they liked about him was the same people that was over him, he overthrew him. But not only that, the, great, the, the greatest scene that everybody loves in Scarface is the ending scene, where Tony Montana is in, in there getting drunk and getting high and getting tore down, um, and, and he's sitting up in his office, and he noticed that some cats is coming in on him, so he's like, oh, I bet, all right, bet. He grabbed, he grabbed his gat, and he begins to go in out and, and, and make, waiting for cats to come in so he can, so he can do his thing, and, and everybody's getting hyped off of this section because this cat is willing to face an army of people. As a kingpin, he's willing to die, and he's like, man, he died hard. Man, he died nasty, and he said, well, help, and everybody loves this line. Let me introduce you to my little friend. And everybody loves that part of the movie because he seems to be dying, blazing in the glory of a, of a thug's reign. But I'm not producing, that's, that's a fictional story. 99.9% of thugs don't end their life like that. They don't end hard, and that's not even a hard death, and plus the show is fictional. But I want to introduce you to a poor immigrant that came from heaven to earth. He didn't go out with physical blazing guns. 
But he went out in a whole nother way that was slept on, just like Tony Martin. People think he was slept on. But I, but I guarantee you that the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, who tucked his glory in a skin suit, came to planet Earth to floss the glory of God, was slept on. And we're going to see him in his scene of martyr. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm waiting for the hip hop generation to change from the, uh, the icons of Scarface and those who went down in blazing glory into nothingness to, to, to embracing the one whose death really meant something. And today we want to dive into Jesus's cross, God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Jesus's cross, God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Y'all ready? My man, um, my man John is a unique writer. I love the way he pegs this. He's not, he's not contradicting Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John does something beastly. John begins to lay out the overarching picture of the cross of Jesus Christ and showing the fingerprint of God's sovereignty on every aspect of the cross. But in the midst of him showing God's sovereignty, he also talks about the responsibility of human beings. And so we saw, well, one of the things that John does that I love is John traces the, the thread of what he talked about in the prologue, which was chapter one of John, which kind of gives you an introduction to the entire book of John. He, he, he goes back to that and, and us seeing the pictures of what he's been laying out about Jesus. He's been talking about this ultimate glorification of God through the cross of Jesus Christ, this whole book. He's been giving snapshots and commercials and infomercials of the fact that this whole book, it has a purpose that's going to the apex, the top, the, the, the climax of this book. And we saw in the book of science from chapter 2 to chapter 12 that Jesus Christ turned water into wine. He cleansed the temple. He, he, um, he fed the 5,000. Um, he healed, he healed all types of people of all types of diseases. And we see all the way through that that Jesus' focus wasn't not to just be good to people through good acts of kindness, but his passion and desire through the feeding of the 5,000, his passion and desire through, through, through healing the man by the pool of Bethesda, his passion and desire for, for, for healing the cat with blindness um, was something bigger than just being nice. And so in this passage, we see the culmination of all of those infomercials and pictures laid out in those shadows cast, now being cast in the shadow of a crucified Messiah. So we come to this passage. Let me explain sovereignty. As I, as I was developing the, the title um, for this message, I said, many people might hear the word sovereignty and kind of say, uh-huh. And so what I wanted to do was, instead of just flying past terminology. What I wanted to do was explain it as we dive into text. Is that okay? Sovereignty, I mean, you could do a series on just the sovereignty of God. But today I don't have time to do a series. What I want to do is just lay a light picture so you, when you see the fingerprint, you'll notice it. Sovereignty, what is sovereignty? God is king, supreme ruler, and lawgiver of the entire universe. The sovereignty of God thus expresses, listen, the very nature of God as all-powerful and omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful, able to accomplish his good pleasure. In other words, God is a God. He has pleasures, but his pleasures aren't like our pleasures. Carry out 
his decreed will. God decreed goals. And in God decreeing these goals, he works everything out in the affairs of men to see to it that those things take place. And his promises. The gospel itself displays God's sovereignty. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. God's, the gospel is the expression of God's absolute supreme rule over all creation. Let my man say there are a lot of people that are out here calling themselves king. There are a lot of people that say they're the king of the south and they're the king of the east coast and they're the king of the west coast. But there's only one real supreme ruler. And today the sovereignty of God is is the realized and unrealized rule of God over all men. The sovereignty of God. So those who are called Christ is the power of God. And so the sovereignty of God is, is, is God's expressed control and absolute supremacy over all creation. And that he works everything out according to the counsel of his own will. God isn't looking at man, seeing what man is going to do and tweak his decrees. No, even in the midst of man's seeming freedom, God is still supremely ruling the goals of what he wants to happen to happen. And so the cross is the apex of that. The cross is central to that. No matter where your life is today, no matter how much you think you're in control, God is in control. And we're going to see in this text, not just talking about God is in control, so I'm going to just do my own thing, and I'm not going to be responsible. That's an improper response to the sovereignty of God. The centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ points us to God's absolute rule over all creation, but points to our submission to his sovereignty. So several things that my man, that my man does. The first thing that he does in this passage is the cross depicts Jesus as supreme king. Look at the look at the look at verses 17 and in, in chapter 19 to 22. It says and he went out bearing his own cross. Took the place called to the place called the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others. One on either side. And Jesus between them, Pilate, who wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews and said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. But rather, this man said that he was the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. This is powerful. Because right here we see Jesus getting crucified. He's been crowned with the crown of thorns. And this crown of thorns has been bludgeoned with redemptive blood. 
No matter what crown we've seen in our life, the crown of Miss America, the crown of, of Charlemagne, the crown of Constantine, the crown of cats on the block, the crown of cats in videos with, with, with diamonds around their neck, none of that is worth the crowning of this king right here because the blood of Christ is the most exquisite jewel that God has ever had to offer. And so we see here that he's being crucified. Oh, if I had time to just talk about the crucifixion. But, but let's just give a picture. It's funny that John doesn't give a lot of details, but he makes a beeline towards Jesus' kingship. But I think for those of us who may not be familiar with the brutality of the crucifixion, maybe we should lay that out a little bit. Is that okay? Crucifixion was innovated by the Persians. The Persians were the first. They didn't use it as, as much as others did, but, but they were one of the first to innovate the execution of people, uh, the, uh, the, the Carthians of Carthage, they, they, they used it, the, the Phoenicians used it, the Greeks used it, but the Romans mastered it. And the Roman Empire would never crucify, they would never put on a cross any of their own citizens unless they were, um, unless they were convicted of what Jesus Christ was convicted of, and that's high treason against the imperial throne of their, his majesty, uh, Lord Caesar. But little did they know that there was a greater Lord coming in the mix. But in the midst of this passage, crucifixion was brutal. Because after you were scourged, and after your skin was almost pulled off of every, uh, off of many areas of your life, um, off every, uh, many areas of your body, um, you would have to carry your cross. And most people have a picture of Jesus carrying the cross, the T, the, the lowercase T, carrying it like this. That's not how he carried it. The, 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 the long part of the T was already in the ground waiting for him. What they would do is they would tie the, the beaten and scourged person, they would tie them to the, to the cross, uh, the cross beam of the T and make them carry their cross up what we call Golgotha, which translated also comes out to mean Calvary. And so what they would do is they would have to carry it. And Jesus was unique because Jesus possibly got scourged twice. And while he was bleeding and being bludgeoned and already near death, um, Jesus already had told Caesar, I mean, told his man Pilate, listen, what me being given into your hands is not your work, but it's a work of God. And so Jesus, I believe God is sovereignly keeping him alive in his body because he was beaten and bludgeoned. And as he was going up this hill, when they got, when they got up to, to the top of Golgotha, they would, they would lay cats down, and then they would begin the nailing process. They would take the stake out of the ground, lay it down, put the person on it, attach them to it. Once they attach them to it, then they would raise them up. But if you'll see, you'll see in this text that people weren't as high up in the air as they normally were. And, and, and crucifixion was mastered by the Romans to keep people alive as long as possible. To keep them alive as long as possible so that they can feel the pain as much as possible. And so they're on the cross and Jesus probably got uh, hit in his wrists rather than what we call hands. But in Jewish culture, hands is from the tip of your fingers to your elbow. So it is accurate that they say he did get pierced in his hands. They put his foot over one another or they put it beside each other, nail them to the cross. Can you imagine getting a stake driven through your wrists. I don't know if you've ever been. I remember my doctor was, was, was giving me a shot. 
uh, no, IV. And when they were giving me the IV, they accidentally hit my nerve right here. My body jolted. And when, and when my body jolted, I was like, yo, what are you doing? And he said, oh, my bad. I hit the something nerve he laid out to me. And I was like, well, whatever it did, it hurt. And that was a little IV needle. But can you imagine getting that artery pierced with a stake? And Jesus was pierced with that stake and then raised up. They probably put a seat under him. They put the seat under you so that you could stay alive longer. <laughs> because what they wanted you to do is breathe. So Jesus didn't, didn't die because he bled to death. Even though he bled, he died of what's called asphyxiation. He died of slow suffocation. What they want you to do is like you ever worked out and and people tell you to breathe during your workout. Well, what was happening on the cross is is Jesus and and, and whoever is on the cross, they, they, they are working out trying to breathe. So in order to breathe, they would raise themselves up to try to get a breath and come back down. But after a while, you ever, had the, you ever felt the lactate acid all in your muscles because of a hard workout? And imagine you saying, man, I need to breathe. And you start breathing and you start breathing. But imagine you don't have the proper breathing going on. And because you don't have the proper breathing going on, oxygen is not getting to your muscles so they're not recovering and being able to work out further so that you can continue your workout. Well, the cross, I mean, these guys master, filled with masterful wickedness said, let's, let's make sure that they don't get much oxygen. And so all of the time, guys usually would stay on it for days at a time, wheezing and trying to catch their breath while they're bleeding. And so Jesus is, is in this position on the cross as the king. But then the Jews come along and they come aside and they say, they say, they say yo, um, 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 we don't want him to be proclaimed as king. And Caesar says, what I've done, I've done. And what's powerful about what Caesar has done, stay with me. Uh, um, what's powerful about what my man Caesar has done is Caesar uh, felt trapped by the Jews. And so because he felt trapped by the Jews, he put this sign up. And he put this sign up as a, as, as a, as a sign to the Jews and to the sign of others that this is not what you're supposed to do. That's what the inscriptions were for, to talk about the charges that people were brought up on. But here Caesar has laid up Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And the Jews say, no, say that he said he's the king of the Jews. And Jesus says, and, and Mr. Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. What's interesting is God uses Pilate's decision in the hand of his sovereignty as an as a unpronounced prophet to proclaim the kingship of Christ. What's interesting is that he put it in several languages. He put it in Aramaic, um, he put it in Greek, and he also put it in Latin. Aramaic was, was the common language among the Jews during that, during that period of time. Latin was, was the language... Uh, of the uh, of the imperial soldiers and the language of Rome and Greek was the was the common language of all common people everywhere and what they wanted to do is in every single language known to the known world they wanted people as they passed by and see the horrific picture of men trying to keep themselves alive and suffocating and waiting to die because they'd be used to when guys die they would really rot on the cross 
and then, and then, and then scavengers would come in and pick at them and eat their skin off of their flesh as nutrition for themselves as they're scavenging. And so as they go by, people would see the scavengers and they'd also see the inscription. And this inscription being in all of these languages, I believe, is a beautiful picture of missions. That while Jesus was on the cross, Pilate thought he was warning people only. He thought he was warning people with telling people what not to do. But the God of heaven was utilizing the languages of that day to proclaim the supremacy of Christ as God. Even though the people didn't receive it as that, God, who was reconciling himself, bringing, buying people back, was sovereignly, missionally co- proclaiming himself through what man thought was something that they were doing. The, f- the sovereign fingerprint of God And this passage is beautiful because many times in our lives, we think we're enacting on our own initiative to do our own thing. But God will powerfully use your own actions, whether in his will or out of his will, to exact his sovereign good. Many people sleep on this reality, but our God, the God of heaven is a God that's not like sitting up there twiddling his thumbs, making mistakes. Ah, dag, I got to change this because man did that. I didn't know he was going to do that. God is not a stupid God. God is not an insolent God, but he's a supreme God. He sees things both past, present, future at the same time as present to him because he exists outside of it. And so on the cross, he's proclaiming, he's proclaiming this poor immigrant as supreme ruler of the universe. And then we see in the passage, we see in the passage as he's going forward, it says, so the chief priests, go down, go down to verse 23. He says, he says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But his tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. (laughs) So the soldiers did these things. Even in the midst of the soldiers who were allowed, all soldiers, it was four of them, were always used and always allowed to divide the person that they crucified on the cross. They were allowed to devour devour his, 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 his possessions that were left on him. Uh, for their own possession. And as they were utilizing their own decrees and their own ability, God was still working through that to fulfill the beauty of the fact that he's sovereign even over men casting lots for the garments of Christ. Over and over and over again, we're going to see the beauty of this in this passage. Even as Christ is crucified and these cats are dividing uh, his garments up, they still don't realize that even in the mix of that, God is supreme and he's sovereign all throughout the time of this entire crucifixion. But then he goes further. Then he goes further and it says, it says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of uh, Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the uh, the disciples, whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, 
that disciple, <laughs> that disciple took her into his home. That brings me to my next point. The cross, the cross demands commitment to both natural and supernatural responsibilities. This is powerful. Our Catholic counterparts believe that this was the time in which Jesus was um, exalting Mary as, as the mother of the people of God, saying, behold your mother. But this is a real, this is a real simple thing that's going on here that I think has, has, has been passed by a lot. It's, it's, that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus, as the eldest son of his mother, is handing John over to her care. And this is powerful. Because I'm, I'm imagining... Jesus Christ just got scourged, scourged. He's on the cross, nailed up, tatted up with his own blood, skin peeling off, looking down at his mother and John standing there and all of these others standing there, and he has enough wits to take care of his business. He didn't allow his supernatural calling to shirk his natural calling. What was his natural calling? was to be the eldest son who took care, listen, who took care of his family and made sure that his mom's was taken care of. And I, I'm, I'm blown away by the fact that Jesus has his wits and his mind together enough to take care of his business. Many of us need to take notes from this because sometimes many of us allow our supernatural callings to make us naturally irresponsible. We have to be careful of that. Not paying our stuff on time. I, I got to do what God called me to do. I'm just saying, you know, I got to do what God called me to do. Oh man, I forgot that because I was doing what God told me. No, no. Jesus is the ultimate example of what it looks like to balance natural responsibility with supernatural responsibility. You can't say that you're called to ministry or you're called to missions or you're called to do this or you're called to do that and you're not taking care of your natural business. See, us in the hood that grew up in the hood, we need to hear this. Because a lot of times, if you were, if, 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 being from the hood, you, you're an extreme at everything. If you're like me, you're one of them folk that love hard. How many of y'all are hard lovers? You know, whatever you do, you throw yourself into. If you're in a relationship, you throw yourself into it. And so because you're a hard lover, you're all or nothing. And so what happens is you trust Christ. God redeems that. You love hard, but you love hard in an unbalanced way. You don't see your natural in light of the supernatural, and you pursue God at the expense of your bills being paid, at the expense of taking care of family, at the expense of taking care of your kids, at the, at the expense of a lot of things, but nothing. God has not called us, listen, to allow supernatural calling to overthrow our natural calling. That's key. And Jesus Christ, in all of this pain, suffocating, suffocating, heart slowed down, every muscle in his body in excruciating pain, trying to hold himself up to breathe, sees his mom's. And in the midst of knowing that he's dying for the sins of the world, has enough gall to say, take my mom into your care, fam. Take care of my moms. I'm about to die. And I want you as my disciple. I'm not giving her to my brothers. They're not believers yet. So I need you to naturally take care of my moms. And I want you to supernaturally take care of my mom. Because I know that under, under Jewish law, I'm supposed to do this. 
And so I pray that we wouldn't always make all kinds of excuses, excuses while we just can be raggedy and folky in the earth realm. But that when we look at the cross, the cross has infinite implications for our life if you look at it. If we look at it together. And I pray that we would become responsible in every area of our lives. I don't like the fact that, 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 that adults of particular persuasions put this generation on blast. How about us looking at the cross and saying, let's not allow ourselves to be put on blast because Jesus even on his cross, did not stop taking care of his responsibility. Matter of fact, like we were talking about a few weeks ago, don't let the trials of your life shut you down from your responsibility. Matter of fact, the crosses that, because Christ carried his cross, he got on his cross and still took care of his business. Don't let trial, suffering, and issues in your life shut down simple application of God's principles. Oh man, I wish somebody would hear this today. That we would become, that we would become absolutely unadulteratedly responsible. Let's go to being biblical adults. Many of us have more theology in our minds than we can apply. But your phone always getting turned off. Amen, lights and walls. All this thing, I mean, I was reading Norman Geisler. But you can't pay your rent and your, your house note on time. Taking your student loans and buying a car instead of paying your tuition, getting kicked out of school. Well, you know, God called me to an education, and you know, He wants His people not to be ignorant because God's people are false because of the lack of knowledge. So, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to, you know how we do. When you get just a little, ink, most of them, I remember my first semester of Greek, when we got our, when we finished the semester, he said, clap your hands. He said, y'all know a first year of Greek, but he said, you know just enough to be dangerous. That means tear up the Bible with it. So he said, keep learning. I pray that as we become a community of theology, a community that loves the deep things of God. We, we use words like sovereignty, propitiation, uh, transubstantiation, all, all of these words we utilize to describe things. I pray that the simplicity of devotion to Christ finds its way into our natural application through the cross. Everything is at the cross. There's nothing in our lives that's not at the cross. That's why we preach it so much. That's why we have it in every song. That's why we talk about it so much. Because the nutrition of the cross is not just something to help us clap our hands and worship and talk up and, and use as apologetics. No, the cross invades as nutrients for every area of our lives. And so I pray that we can grab a hold of the cross and see the deep things of the cross, but then also um, see the things of the cross that makes its way into us being good stewards over every part of our life. And I'm convicted by Christ's pain and him still being a steward over his natural responsibility. If, if it was me on the cross, only th and I had some, some debt to pay, I'd be like, dang, my bad, man. I can't pay that debt, man. You see where I am up on the cross. I probably, you know what I'm saying, or oh, I'd have had so much pain going through. That would have been the last thing I would have thought about. But he's being tortured. And he had enough mind to take care of his business. Many of us don't need much torturing not to take care of our business. <laughs> There's a little, oh, 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 
okay, you know, I was just waiting for somebody. Is it always on? And we, we moving. But I want us to see the pragmatics of the cross. Taking care of our business. David says, your word has made me more wise than my teachers. Look, your age, whether young or old, even if you're older and, 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 and you're just getting into the scriptures, if you're younger and you're just, listen, your age is not an obstacle because the cross is the mighty equalizer. <laughs> the cross, no matter where you are in life, everybody has to come to the cross. And when they come to the cross, fam, everybody got to lay their trash down and everybody gets central equality. But from that, we have to work from that for the beauty of the work of God in our lives. But not only did, does, does the cross demand supernatural, uh, uh, demands our natural responsibilities to complement our natural responsibilities, but the cross demands that supernatural responsibilities <laughs> complement our natural responsibilities. Where do I get that from? Look in the text. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, wow, said to, the, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there so that they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had finished, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. In this passage, we see that Jesus Christ, even in taking care of his natural responsibilities, didn't allow his natural responsibility to get in the way of his supernatural responsibility of dying on the cross. Jesus is in the awareness that all of the steps that had brought him to the point of this death is designed after the will, the sovereign will of the heavenly Father. Jesus' keen awareness of his mission amidst this immense pain is, is not just commendable. Seeing his careful clarity of mind in the greatest torture in the history of humanity is overwhelming. Jesus Christ is in the midst of this agony, not only seeing his natural responsibility, but he's also seeing his supernatural responsibility. This is powerful in several ways. When you look in here, he remembers that, listen to what it says. It says he did all of this to fulfill the scriptures, knowing that all was now finished. He says, I thirst. He had enough wits to remember that he had more scripture to fulfill. And so he didn't allow his natural responsibility and his relationship to his family to, to, to shirk. Okay, he said, now I've taken care of that, but I also have this other responsibility that God has placed me on the cross for. Jesus says, I thirst. It's the fulfillment of the scriptures, it points to. Obedience to the Father through limiting himself in the incarnation. The fact that the supreme ruler of the universe allows himself to thirst. A lot of people see a lot of imagery in this hyssop branch and point back to the Passover. It's not used the same way here, but it, it does point to what the scriptures were saying. And this sour wine was 
it was fermented wine that, and they would pour water in it. They would mix it up and the soldiers would drink it to quench themselves on hot days. Well, they put this up to Jesus' mouth. And I can't imagine the tartness of that in his mouth after having had drank or eaten anything since the night. Since the, the last time Jesus drank anything was during the Last Supper. So now we see that now he's being able to now drink for the first time. But his thirst was far beyond our comprehension and what Christ was thirsting for. But it also points to the fact that Jesus Christ's suffering was authentic. God didn't, he didn't take the narcotic of myrrh. It was a narcotic that they tried to give to Jesus that would numb the pain. Mothers would mix up the narcotic when they knew that their son was going to get crucified and they would come and give them something to drink. It was kind of like cocaine or opium or or, or at least to, to be able to help you not to feel the pain. But Jesus Christ shunned it and said, yo man, I have to feel the pain, every last inch of this pain. So Jesus didn't get drunk like it was just a sponge. So all he did when they put the sponge up was he did a little slip, bam. But it was more to fulfill scripture than to fulfill his actual thirst. But what's powerful is that Jesus, Jesus didn't need, didn't take an epidural on the cross. Although we were being born again and he was birthing a lot of babies through his death, he didn't take an epidural. Some of y'all don't know what an epidural is. That's what women take to make sure that there's a little less pain when they're giving birth. But Jesus says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to birth my, my new holy nation into existence without any help from anything. Because I want to feel the pain of birthing many babies in the spirit. And so today we're here because Jesus felt the individual pain for each and every one of us counted with the departure of God and the, the laying of sins on him and still having the beauty of mind to remain responsible. Jesus is unadulteratedly the greatest, not just example, but the quintessential, the apex of what it means to be responsible to our calling. See, many of us on the other end of things allow our natural lives to get in the way of of walking in a more supernatural relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I got to take care of my family. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to make Hold on. I'll be right back. Let me do this. We never see you again. Jesus didn't let him handing his mother over to his disciple get in the way of his supernatural responsibility. And I pray that we're balanced like that. That we don't use all of the things that we have to do. I got to take care of this. I got to take care of that. To not, to shirk our, our supernatural responsibility to God's kingdom. We're supposed to see our natural responsibility supernaturally, but we're also supposed to not allow that natural, the basic uh, needs of life to be so consumed with the basic, I need this and I got to have that and I need to take care of this person and I got to take care of this and never get to the point where God's specific calling and God's specific design for what he's called you to do, that to be, that to be an obstacle to it. We got to be very careful of that. But Jesus goes here and he does something interesting. He says, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. To tell us die. It's interesting that to tell us die is in the perfect tense. It's interesting that even though he's presently, in present tense, he's saying it is finished. To us, it sounds like he's saying it is finished now. But the perfect tense in the Greek 
is actually a past tense of something that definitively happened in the past, in the past that has uncut and continual effects. When Jesus was on the cross, died, and he said it was finished, he remembered a combo back in the day he had with the Father and the Spirit. He said, say, yo, man, I'm slain before the foundation of the earth. They said, bam, it's done. Jesus says, I was slain before the foundations of the earth, but I'm just allowing you in on the fact that it was already done, but I'm actually doing it, and it's going to continue to be done. So if you're here today and you got a jacked up life, that's good news. Matter of fact, if most of us in here admit it, all of us have a jacked up life. We don't just need a momentary, like, it is finished. We need some continued, it is finished. Because if, if we just admit, like this morning, some of y'all were getting into some stuff this morning, last night, Friday, that you had no business getting into. And what's so beautiful about this perfect is God is saying, look, I, I, it, listen, I knew that you all were going to be tore up from the floor up. And so I had to do something that would take care of all y'all's tore upness. It is finished. To tell us To tell us It is finished. It is finished. Jesus has completed his mission. And it wasn't just a, a call of completion of mission. It was also a cry of victory. Christus Victor. Jesus Christ is being made a spectacle of by his enemies, but he's being appraised through the nostrils of the living God as the one who has taken care and satisfied his wrath. Jesus says, are you able, John and James, to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Jesus Christ taps on God's shoulder and says, gives me the cup. And the cup is all of our sins that God, of, of God's anger. God has a, has a cup every time we sin he puts, he, boil, he boils his cup of wrath. His cup of wrath are all of, all of his, his anger, his righteous anger, his righteous justice. Jesus Christ guzzled down the penalty for those who believe. And when he said it was finished, he says, I'm guzzling this down. And as I'm guzzling it down, it's finished. I have I've, I've not only guzzled the, the cup of God's wrath, but I licked the bowl and washed it out with my tongue. It's finished. It's finished. Jesus Christ is proclaiming to the devil. This one is okay to talk about the devil. Because see, some of us talk about him too much. But here he says, it is finished. He says, devil, you thought you were putting me to death. But while you were putting me to death, God was using you to put me to death and bring many to life. And so now I've taken out of your hands your loaded gun. Now, I'm going to let you still have the gun, but I'm going to take, the, I'm gonna take the, the chamber out. I'm going to take all of the bullets out, and you're going to try to shoot it at those who come into relationship with me. But Colossians says that Jesus Christ on the cross has disarmed the rulers. In other words, in the hands of the living Christ, Christ has disarmed the enemy's ability to get you anymore. Oh, man, you can rebuke some phone calls now. Or you can rebuke. Listen, I'm not talking about the, doing the phone ring. The devil is a liar. The devil is a liar. You bet. I see you on the call. He is a liar. But Jesus' death on the cross didn't just give you the ability to rebuke somebody else. He gave you the ability to rebuke you. 
See, this is when my charismatic side come out. Because here, right on the, in the death of Christ, when he says it is finished, he is heralding heaven and he's heralding earth that it's over, fam. He says, now I'm reformatting. This is the beginning of God reformatting the universe better than the first time he created it. And whoever believes in this will be the part of a prototype community of people who he's drafted on his team. Like, he, we're not accepting him, he's accepting us. Amen. And he's drafting us on his team to be proclamatory recipients of his victory. His victory over sin, his victory over death. So there are things in our life that is causing us to struggle. And we're trying to, I, I, I hear people all the time when I talk to them about Christ, man, I'm, I'm getting myself together, Pastor. You know, Pastor, I'm, I'm working hard. I said, see, that's the problem. I'm, I'm trying, I'm working it out. How's it going? How's it going, fam? How did the brother? It's not going too well, is it? Why? Because you're trying to do it. But when Christ said it is finished, that means you have the ability to not drink from the cup of wrath, but drink from the cup of his blood. When you drink from the cup of his blood, your immune system, your spiritual immune system is now immune to sin. <laughs> but the issue is many of us don't pull on that reality every day of our lives that it is finished. That it is finished. What, if somebody says, why do I sin? That's because the blood hasn't gotten to that area yet. But God wants the blood to infiltrate every area of our lives. We're covered for heaven, but now we need to live out our covering for the finishing work of Christ as we live it out in our day-to-day -day lives. It is finished. The atonement has been accomplished, and now the Bible says we have been saved from the wrath of God. Through Christ, the raging God who had a beef with all creation backs up off of everyone who is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us didn't know that there was a hit out on our life. But when Christ died, Jesus Christ tore up the contract that God had on, on our lives. So when he said it is finished, he said it is finished. But not only that, he gave up, he gave up his spirit. Sovereignty again. It's funny. It didn't say then Jesus died. He said he gave up his spirit. Jesus on the cross, he said, I think, I think, I, I think everything's done. Cleaned up the house, washed the dishes, sweep the floor, washed the windows. I think it's done. It's finished. Jesus Christ told Pilate, you're not taking my life, fam. I'm giving it. He gave up his spirit. That means he sovereignly released himself from his body to die. <laughs> and he wasn't leaving his body until it was time. This is not the punk that we 
tend to, this is, this is, people tend to lay Jesus out to be some feminized punk. Some, 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 some picture that, that produces some guy with light around him standing, standing in a field with, with wheat and, and lambs and petting them with, one, with his pinky finger. And running around with, with his hand, with holding hands with Peter and Andrew. Skipping through the forest. Come on, are there some more souls for us to save? That's not the Savior I serve. I save a beastly Lord that talked smack while he was going out. He talked smack. Just give me something to drink. I thirst. Nate wouldn't usually do that. He said, all right, um, let me see. He, I mean, gee, I mean, y'all got to see the irony of him on the cross. And I'm saying it's all done. All right, man, now I'm ready to grow. It's as if he's telling his enemies. He said, you thought that your hitting of me was going to kill me, but I leave when I'm ready, fam. And I'm not presenting a thug Jesus either. I'm just presenting a, the supreme ruler. Like, not this dude in the paintings. That's why we're not going to have none up, because those depictions don't depict him. Not well. Some people say, well, Jesus Christ was black, so? Is he Lord? Listen, we, we don't, we, we don't, we, the reason why there are women many times outnumbered men in church is because we present a soft Jesus. Women can relate to a soft Jesus. Men can't. But if the manly, sweaty, bloody, beasted out Jesus comes in, the women will love him and the men will love him. We got to proclaim a different cat. Now, just because we dress as hip-hoppers, that don't proclaim Jesus. A do-rag don't proclaim Jesus. Tim's don't proclaim Jesus. The gospel proclaims Jesus. And so I pray that we would change our view of the ruler. Listen to the rest of the story as we close. Listen to the sovereignty. He's died. But look at his sovereignty. It says, since, verse 31, it says, since it was the day of preparation, that means for Passover, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, because Sabbath started on the evening when sun went down, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. (laughs) And so they take these iron billy clubs, like they just some messed up looking iron joints, like some caveman iron billy clubs. And while the cat was suffocating on the cross and sitting on the seat, they come by and just go pop and crack his and just pop his 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 knees are loose. And then he would he would droop down and his arms are just holding him up and he's laying off and his legs are just holding him up. And then he can't raise up to breathe. And then he dies of suffocation that way. <laughs> but it's funny. He did that to the other two. And he's, he's gone. He gave up his spirit. But then all of a sudden it says, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first two and the other who had been, others had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus <laughs> and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. 
even in his death, he's letting them know, you're still not in control of me. I gave my life up. You don't take my life. Then he said, just to show off, God threw some scriptures in in the Old Testament to show off how sovereign he is by saying, and none of his bones will be broken. And so it says, to fulfill the fact that the scriptures can be fulfilled and none of his bones were broken, but the other two were. Now look at how sovereign, how sovereign he is. He says, but the soldiers pierced him in the side. Now they thought just because he was making sure he was dead by piercing him in the side, it still fulfills scripture. Sovereignty. Look. He, I mean, he, I mean, he, I mean, Jesus, he a beast, man. They hit him up in the side, and it said, and the blood and water came out. Oh, if I had time to talk about the beauty of blood and water in Johannine literature. Do I have a minute? The beauty of the blood, the blood and water point back to, 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 to Torah. When, when a man was cleansed of something, they, they, they would, they would sprinkle him with blood and, 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 and pour out a libation. <laughs> they would all, and then it also goes back to Ezekiel 36 when he says, I will sprinkle you clean with water, remove the old spirit out of you, put a new spirit in you, take the old heart out of you, put a new heart in you, put my spirit in you, cause you to walk in my statutes. Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, you must be born of water, uh, of water and spirit. Everybody uh, jacks that passage up, but you, what, he said, why, why, what, what is Jesus saying? We've talked about this before, but for the new people, I got to tell you. What he was going back to was, he said, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law. You should know these things. Well, how was, if Jesus expected him to know based on law, prophets, and writings, what was he telling him? He's pointing him to Ezekiel, sprinkle you clean with water. When it says water and spirit, water is the purifying agent. The spirit, it, it, being, it just means being born again and having God's spirit put in you based on Ezekiel 36. So everybody didn't want to make it something else with something else. But no, God was again doing this. So when he got pierced in his side, the blood and cleansing agent of his blood was coming out. And then it points back to when he says, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. When they pierced him, scholars are trying to figure out where it's coming from. Where did water come from? <laughs> it's the imagery of the beauty of the water. I will give you living water. Jesus says, if anyone wants life, you will come to me and drink. He's sovereign. Then it says, and he who, uh, he said, he was bold witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones are broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. Finally, said, after these things. Joseph of Aramaea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might be, take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who early had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys. Aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Powerful. This is a powerful way to end the crucifixion narrative in John by pointing to the fact that two people that one was secretly a disciple, one wasn't a disciple at all, take their belief in Christ public. 
In order to get the body of Jesus, these guys were part of the Sanhedrin. They went in, got the body of Jesus, and my man, probably with some servants, because these were rich men, took 75 pounds of spices and aloes. Now, most of this, usually they would throw someone on the crucifix. They would just toss them into an unmarked grave. Or they would allow them to stay on the cross until their body was devoured by vultures. <laughs> but these guys go in, taking, putting their reputation at risk. Putting themselves at risk by being ceremonially unclean. To go get the sovereign Lord and give him a burial worthy of a king. Put him in a brand spanking new grave in a, in, in, a, in a chamber by himself so that when he got up from the grave, it was no mistake there was only one person in there, not nine people in there. That no one had ever been in because it was never robbed. So they can't say the body was put back after it was decayed and all of that. And they took that and laced the spices on all of these wrappings and wrapped Jesus in it. And they placed him in the tomb. The beauty of this is he still proclaimed king that even though he died like a robber, he got a king's burial. But not only that, the people who were afraid of others were willing to take a risk and identify themselves with Jesus. Maybe it's you today. You've been fearful of what being called a salvation in Christ means. You've been fronting on Christ and maybe you're an underground believer. There's no such thing as a person that believes in Jesus and doesn't in some way bear the marks of that reality publicly. Maybe you're here today and you've been in fear. You've been fearing people around you. You've been fearing what you're going to lose what you've been holding on to. My prayer is that today you will for the first time come to the cross. Stop fronting on the Lord Christ and come to him, realizing that all of us in here who trusted Jesus are jacked up, tore up from the floor. None of us are fronting like we got it. If we could get ourselves together, we wouldn't need a cross. We've admitted that we can't do it. And if we would have kept doing it, it still wouldn't have gotten done. So we said, God, we didn't just pray a prayer and somebody laid hands on us and we were released and saved. We repented of our sins. We agreed with the fact that God is right and we're wrong. Not, you know how your boy is. You know, I'm basically a good dude. You know, I t you know, I take care of my people. I do you know what I'm saying? No. All of us, no matter how many good works we've done, in the, on our best day, they're but filthy rags. And Jesus Christ is calling us today to come to the beautiful cross. For those, the cross was ugly to those who don't understand it. But for those who it's the power of God, the sovereignty of God, unto salvation. <laughs> we see the beauty of the cross as the place where our lives were changed forever. 
But you got to repent of your sins and believe that Christ did it for you. Not just did it, not that he existed and he did it. And I know where my blessings come from. That's me and him, that's my ace. No, we're not talking about all that. We're talking about reverencing ourselves under the imperial Lord of the universe and admitting that we're tore up and that we're in need of his son. Bow your heads. That's you today. You've never trusted Jesus Christ as your savior. We don't usually do this, but we want you to slip your hand in the air. We want to we talk to you.